We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. Well, hello, friends. Glad to uh, see you again with us uh, as we come to this uh, final study in the letter to the Colossians. What we have in the New Testament, and especially in a letter like this as part of the New Testament, is the inspired incidental writings. They're incidental. That is, this is an incident in history. A man writing to a church about the issues that were involved in their life and in their time. It's just a particular town in Turkey, Colossi, from which we then get the people who live there being Colossians. And he's writing to this town in Colossae where a church had been founded by his colleague Epaphras about the details of life. And especially as we read through this last section, you see the incidental nature of it. This one's coming to you soon, that one's coming back. When you get this letter, do that, make sure this person does that. It's the incidents of life. But in the incidents of life, we have written the inspired message of God. Even these incidents, which seem so little and so very, very ordinary, are part of God's message to us that we need to read, that we need to take account of. That is, when God became man, he did just that. He became a man. Just a carpenter in a town in Galilee that looked like everybody else, a little baby that grew up into a boy that grew up into a man, who ate as the rest do, who went to bed as the rest do, Here was God revealing himself, but he revealed himself in the most ordinary of ways. Here likewise is God revealing his mind to us in the most ordinary of events. It's not high-flying philosophy. It's not deep, profound thinking that is going to overwhelm the mind of the greatest minds amongst us and leave the rest of us completely befused and befuddled. It's just in the normal incidents of life that God's inspired message comes to us. But in that ordinary, confined, one-time, one-place, we have the context by which we can understand what God is saying to us. That here we have before us, in this one letter, a message for all churches at all times. Even the man who wrote it knew that, because you see in chapter 4, verse 16, how he's expecting this letter to be read in that church and borrow the letter I wrote from them and send it. didn't have the, the kind of email world we have today where with the press of the button you send the one letter to 10, 15, 20 different people, some of whom you didn't want to send it to. In those days you write it out with your own hand. Well, having written it out with your own hand, there's no photocopy machines Uh, you say, you take it and read it there and read it there and read it there and by the way, I've sent one to them, read their one too because I'm writing them for general consumption. But as we come to the end of this letter, we increasingly see the incidental parts, the details of their lives, the movements of friends and associates because Paul lived and worked in a circle of friends. Although he's such a kind of singular person, he's out there as the apostle to the world, he doesn't do it all alone. He does it in relationship with other people. 
with colleagues with whom he works, protégés whom he's raising up, and always a loving affection and relationship with the church that he's planted and the Christians that he knows. And Paul's colleagues, Paul's friends, Paul's circle of friends are well worthy of studying and understanding. Today you can see on the outline there I've got A to G of the different kinds of people who are referred to in this passage here. Firstly, there's the two messengers in verses 7 and 9, Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus has a wonderful word of commendation given to him. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister. This is the word of commendation that all Christian people would love to have, especially from an apostle, that he is beloved and that he is faithful. There are two characteristics of God in the Old Testament, love and faithfulness. When God revealed his glory to Moses, he didn't reveal his power, he didn't reveal his creative force, he didn't reveal his incredible mind. God revealed his glory to Moses by revealing his love and faithfulness. For the gods of the ancient world were neither loving nor faithful. The gods of the Greeks were incredibly fickle. The gods of the Romans wouldn't know love if they fell over it. In fact, the Romans thought love was a weakness. It was a pathetic uh, kind of thing. You, you, you never show love, kindness, mercy, generosity to a man who's down. When he's down, you put the boot in. That's what you do if you're a Roman. The idea that you would show mercy, that you would show kindness, that you would show generosity, that's just not a Roman idea. It's a very Jewish idea. It's a very Christian idea. Because God that is revealed to us in the scripture is profoundly gracious, kind, generous. And even though our society has stepped away from Christianity, that ethic, that understanding of love still dominates People may be unloving in the business world in which we exist, but when discussions of virtues take place, it's very hard in a Western society to ever argue against love, kindness, mercy, generosity, graciousness, because we've been so infused by God through the gospel, through the Christian roots of our culture and society. But then the other aspect is faithfulness reliability, truthfulness, trustworthiness, dependability. That also is the character of God and is to be taught to God's people. And here is a man, Tychicus, who has both these characteristics of God. He's a beloved brother because that's what brothers should be, loved and loving. And he is a faithful minister, servant, for that's what servants need to be, faithful, reliable, trustworthy, dependable. And he is also a fellow servant of the Lord. The word servant there really is the fellow slave of the Lord, for we Christians are in bonded service to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is sent to the Colossians, possibly even carrying this letter, and will fulfill, uh, will fill the Colossians in about Paul. He can trust what he says about me because he is beloved by me and because he is a faithful minister. And he will encourage their hearts, which considering that Paul, their founding apostle, was in prison at the time, they most likely needed a bit of encouragement. Like all kind of Australian cricket followers, need a little bit of encouragement on a day like today. I don't know what encouragement there is to give to us, uh, other than those silly comments like, well, it was a great game anyway, and it was good for cricket. But uh, there's a downheartedness you see as your team loses. Their founder is in prison. 
Don't worry, Tychicus is going to bring a word of encouragement and with him comes Onesimus, the other messenger. He was a Colossian himself and so he'll be able to tell them everything that's happening. But he's also commended as a faithful and beloved brother. Faith and love combined. Presumably this Onesimus is the same Onesimus that we read about in Philemon, the runaway slave. Uh, It's a short letter in the New Testament. Then there are three Jews mentioned in verses 10 to 11. These are the only men of the circumcision. Aristarchus is Paul's fellow prisoner, of whom we know really nothing else. Mark we know about, and Jesus, whose other name is Justice, again we know very little of. But Mark is the one we do know of. Mark was Barnabas's cousin or nephew, certainly relation, who went with Paul on the first missionary journey, but caught cold feet halfway through and left. When it came to the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had a big fight over whether they'd take Mark again, and Paul wouldn't want to take Mark the second time. Mark was one of the Jews, and Barnabas and Mark went off together, and Paul went separately from Barnabas. It's lovely to read here in Colossians that sense of reconciliation, as we don't know the instructions the Colossians had about him, but they are to welcome Mark, and Mark, he is with them. And there is somebody that is now united again. However, amongst the fellow workers for the kingdom, amongst the circle of friends that are Paul's, these are the only Jewish ones. And they've been a great comfort to Paul while he is in prison. We'll see more of why that comfort would be there in prison. But notice first the the next, the local hero, Epaphras, or Epaphroditus is the full name. We met him first in the first study because he's the faithful minister by which the gospel has come to them. Look back to chapter 1 verse 7, chapter 1 verse 7 about the gospel of the grace of truth which verse 7, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Paul himself didn't plant this church. Paul preached in Ephesus and while he was preaching in Ephesus, His offsider, Epaphras, actually planted the church. It was a Pauline church, but it came through Epaphras. And so now we have Epaphras being sent to the message, a local hero, a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, the word is better translated, a slave of Jesus Christ, who, notice what is said about him. It's an incredible statement there in verse 12. He greets you always, but he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Would that people would struggle for you in prayer. Would that you would struggle for others in prayer. Prayer is a struggle, isn't it? I mean, prayer is that kind of activity that's wonderful when you're finished. But if you say, let's go to a prayer meeting again tomorrow, you say, well, I'm just a bit busy now. It is a struggle to keep praying and to persist in prayer. But Epaphras was a great agoniser in prayer, a great struggler for the Colossians in prayer. And the purpose of his prayers, that you can see there, is that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's the burden of what he was praying for the Colossians, which is the very theme of this letter. For we've suggested as we worked our way through it that chapter 2, verses 6, 7 and 8 is what the letter is about. Chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, 
So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. As you received Christ, so go on in Christ. And what is Epaphras praying? That they may go on in Christ, fully assured in him. But we've not finished with Epaphras yet. Paul also bears witness to this local hero that he has worked hard for all the Christians. Epaphras is no slacker. He is a hard-working minister of the gospel, much given to prayer for his hometown folks. Next in the little circle of friends that we have is two people, the friend and the failure. The friend is Luke, the beloved physician who sounds not to be Jewish because we told in verse 10 and 11 that only three were Jewish among his workers. So it sounds as if Luke is not Jewish. And if that is true, then Luke is the only non-Jew to write part of the Bible because this Luke is the one who wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And so there's one Gentile writer in the Bible, if we've understood verse 10 and 11 correctly. To call him a beloved doctor, beloved physician, is is an odd thing to do because in the ancient world doctors were not admired like they are in the modern world. Amongst the Jews in particular, and Paul was Jewish, the doctor was despised because the doctor had to deal with blood and had to deal with death and therefore was nearly always ritually unclean. It was a despicable uh, occupation to be in. I know there are some people today who think doctors are a despicable uh, occupation to be in, but they're generally not sick at the time. Uh, it's, it's wonderful how hypocrisy works. Once the pain comes on, we're very quick to run to the doctor. But in the ancient Jewish world, they were despicable. They and tanners were people that you wouldn't want your daughter to marry because it would mean that your whole family would be ritually unclean. Therefore, to call someone a beloved physician is a real expression of Christian love and of the transformation that's happened in Paul's mind. Luke travelled with Paul, as you can see, in the book of Acts as he joins Paul and leaves Paul at different points in the time. He seems to have been a Greek. But there is also the failure, Demas. You see it there, verse 6. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Here is just a name in the circle of friends. Nothing else is said about him. But we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Very sad little verse. It's descriptive of the choice that we all need to make. For while the Bible is world-affirming in that it believes in creation and marriage and eating and food and work, yet the Bible is also world-denying because this world is fallen and full of sin and death and coming to judgment. And the choice of love in the end is the choice between God and this world. And Demas seems to have made the wrong choice. The letter of the Colossians is to be circulated through letter-swapping with the Laodiceans in verse 15. The churches were close connection with each other. And greetings even were Nympha and the house, the church that's in her house. And there's the instruction to finish the job for Archippus. Uh, in Philippians, in Philemon 2, he seems to be referred to as one of the church leaders and the house church met in his house. But we don't know what ministry he has to finish. 
just that he needs to fulfill whatever God has given him to do. And then finally we read of the apostle himself, who is the imprisoned apostle. He's in prison for the sake of the Gentile Christians. You see, it was the Jewish people who kept complaining to the Roman people that put Paul in prison. He was in a Roman prison. He was there guarded by the Romans, but he was there in a Roman prison because the Jews complained about what he was doing. For he was undermining Judaism by saying that non-Jews could be members of the kingdom of heaven. And this insult upon Judaism led them to put him into a Roman prison. He was preaching that Jesus was not just the Lord of the Jews, the King of the Jews, but the Lord of creation, the firstborn of all creation, as it says in chapter 1, verse 15, and the Lord of salvation, the firstborn from the dead, as it says in chapter 1, verse 18. He's the Lord of this world and the world to come, the Lord of everybody, and if he's the Lord of everybody, then the gospel is for non-Jews. Indeed, the mystery of the Gentile, the mystery of God, is that the Gentiles are to be included in the kingdom of God. It's a mystery not in the sense of being mysterious, but of secret. And Paul's distinctive work was to bring the secret, to bring the mystery out into the open, that when the Messiah comes, he's the Messiah for everybody, not just for the Jews. And in so doing, Paul was put in jail. Chapter 4, verse, 7, verse 18, remember my chains. And that's why the Jews, who were his colleagues, back in verse 11, were such comfort to him. For he at least had these friends from his own background. Now, within this circle of friends, with whom he is in prison, Paul writes and works and expresses his concern for the Colossians. And he writes this letter, with a continuing theme of the Colossians, that is, the theme to continue. That's what Colossians is about, continue. They've started well with Epaphras. They're standing in good order in chapter 2, verse 5. Now they must go on as they have started, in Christ Jesus. And so chapter 4 finishes up the whole theme in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4, which I've skipped over and I want you now to come back to, the two ways of how to continue, in prayer and in wisdom. Verses 2 to 4 speaks about prayer. There's three lessons in verse 2 alone. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue in prayer, persist in prayer. Prayer is never done, it's never finished. We must never grow tired of praying but we must persist in prayer. Secondly, always being watchful in prayer. Watchful because we're in a world that is hostile to us. Watchful because the Lord is going to bring us blessings as we ask for them. Watchful because the Lord Jesus is going to return one day and we will receive all that we've prayed for whenever we've prayed the Lord's Prayer. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? On the night he was betrayed, he told his disciples to watch and pray. And so while we Christians usually pray with our eyes closed, we really should be praying with our eyes wide open, metaphorically, looking for what is about to happen as a result of our prayers, looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we are to pray thankfully. I mentioned this in the example of Paul's own prayer in chapter 1. 
It's how we're to continue to walk in chapter 2, verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. But look back with me at chapter 3 there, chapter 3, same page, 1185. 1185, look at chapter 3. Three times he talks about thankfulness. Verse uh, uh, 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now when we are to pray, we are to do it with thanksgiving. Indeed, it's the consistent teaching of Paul, you'll find it in Philippians chapter 4, that when we make our requests known to God, we should do so with thankfulness. We should always be thanking God because we're asking God to give us things and we can trust that he will give it to us and so we should be thankful We'd be thankful to God because in every circumstance and situation of life, there's always things we can thank God for, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, if nothing else. And because we need to focus our minds in thankfulness when we're asking for help. That is, the thing that drives me to prayer, and I guess you to prayer, are problems, are issues, are anxieties, are worries. And what our problems, our issues do is they become larger and larger and larger the more we think about them. But if we always approach God in prayer for these things, little and large as they may be, if we approach God in prayer with thankfulness in our heart, it tends to put them into perspective. That there is more to my life than my problems. There's more to my life than my anxieties. There is all the things that God has already given to me, is giving to me, will give to me. Make thankfulness part of your prayer to God. And as the the Colossians pray, Paul asks for prayer for himself. Now what do you expect a prisoner in chains to ask for? Yeah, it's an open door, that's what you expect him to ask for, isn't it? And that's what he does ask for, an open door. An open door for the gospel to be preached. Not an open door for him to get out, but the opening of the door that he might have the opportunity to preach the gospel to all nations, for that is the very reason he is here. That's what he's living for, that's what he's dying for, that people might be saved through the gospel. And so he wants the door opened for the opportunity to preach as he ought. But that requires, of course, wisdom. The wisdom to think God's way, which is a concern for the outsider, a concern for the lost, a concern for the nations. For God's wisdom is to send his son into the world to die for the salvation of other people. So you've got to think God's way, which is what Paul is doing. And he tells them to act wisely, but notice how do you act wisely? To act wisely towards outsiders. His life was being lived for the outsider. Now how do you act wisely towards the outsider? Two ways are mentioned here. One, making the best use of the time. Famous old phrase, it's actually redeeming the time, buying back the time. That is, the world has come to an end in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has held up the hand of judgment. Why? So as to give people the opportunity to repent and be saved. We are living in the age which is held in, held in suspended animation, 2,000 years, so that we could be saved and others could be saved. If that's what the world is about now... Keep buying more time by preaching the gospel. 
And so you live with that sense of the urgency of the gospel for those around about you. Now is not the time to build bigger houses, to have overseas trips and to play another game of golf. Nothing wrong with any of those things particularly, but that's not what this time is about. This time is about the salvation of mankind. That's, what we, that's, that's the nature of the game now. And that is how we're to play. And therefore make sure that you have control of your tongue, verse 6. Your speech should always be gracious and salty. Generous, kind, gracious, salty, distinctive, different. When you talk, you're actually talking differently to the people around about you. So that when people ask, you will be able to answer them. That you will have the right things to say. That is how you live wisely to the outsider. So Colossians... Well, the Colossians have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, and have come to fullness of life in him. Now, they've got to go on in him. Not moving aside to anybody else, but grow up in him, so that they might grow in the knowledge of him and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. Accepting Jesus Christ as Lord is terrific and is first step going on in him is what now must be done never moving away from him because if Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth there is no other there's nowhere else to go let's pray Heavenly Father we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ for his death and for his resurrection for the gospel that has taught us about him and we pray Father that each one of us here may start with him as Lord and go on with him as Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.